We're in part nine of our Discovering the Kingdom, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians line by line, and today's message is entitled, God's Good Design. And I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank here in a moment, but I want to address an issue. I want to, Paul's about to say a phrase that we were bought by Christ on the cross. And so I want to talk for a moment, what does it mean? What did Jesus buy? How did he do that? It will set a foundation for everything we're about to read. So here's kind of how it goes. Everything always starts in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God had his family, the people he created, in a safe spot, thriving in their gifting, and having the ability to engage with God directly. In other words, everything was as it should be. But then we utilize what will God had given us to choose a not God option. And you say, well, what's a not God option? Actually, there's a bunch of them. I'm not quite sure all the motivations on why Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit, but I do know that not God options are things like selfishness. I would like to be in charge, not God. That's a not God option. The devil's a not God option. The world is a not God option. Distractions is a not God option, right? There's so many of them, but does it even matter what they are? They're not God. If they're not God, who cares, right? If God is the very source of all that is good, of all that is right, of all that is life, and we detach from that, what do we have? Bad and death. Is that correct? All right. So we got ourselves into significant trouble. We sold ourselves into slavery to sin. In other words, we got ourselves into a predicament where we were disconnected from God. We were dead. There's nothing we can do about it. Well, then Jesus comes and he says, I've come to rescue you. If you are willing to give your life over to me and submit under me, because that means you got to own up to who you are, what you've done. Submit underneath me, which is what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. If you will do that, I'm going to take care of the rest. I will take care of the sin problem. I will take care of the death problem. I'll take care of your baggage problem. I'll take care of all that stuff for you. I want to rescue you. So the question comes up next, how did he do that? Well, Jesus lived this perfect life. But he had come from heaven. And you go, okay, so what's hard about that? Hold on. You say, well, we're all here and we're doing fine. First of all, no, we're not. Second of all, once you've been in heaven and you come down here, that is a drag, right? You have been the king of all creation. Everything worships you. Everyone sees you as you are. And now you come here to a creation you made and they rebel against you. They spit in your face. They humiliate you. They betray you. That's what he traded. But he came down here, lived the perfect life so later he could trade his righteousness for our brokenness. He then goes to the cross, hung on the cross, humiliated, embarrassed in front of everyone, said to be a criminal. In public opinion, he was made a bad guy. And then the worst of it came, not just being on a cross and the agony of that, but the, the father had to actually turn his back on him because he had to pay what we should have paid. He had to pay the wrath of God. He had to pay for sin. He had to pay with his own body and his own blood. In that moment, he paid 
our penalty. That was the price. The reason why I'm being so clear on this is because when we hear that Jesus ransomed us, it means bought us back, we're thinking, well, who's he paying? He's not paying the devil. God doesn't make deals with the devil. He paid who then? Himself. You go, well, hold on. That doesn't make any sense. Why doesn't he just call it a wash? Nope. God set up a system that says there is what's called justice. Someone sins, someone dies. Someone sins, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. That was a lock. God was not going to change his mind. So either we were going to die for our sins or Jesus was going to die for our sins. That's it. Jesus said, I'll take the hit. And he went in and did it, paid the penalty price, and we were released from our death and our sin and allowed to live under him as we were originally designed. That's actually the good news. That's actually the story of the Bible, right? But if that is true, then not only do we owe our lives to the Lord because he gave us life, but then we screwed it up. Now we owe him, what, our lives because then he rescued us from the very garbage we got involved in. So in other words, we owe him everything, yes? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Our bodies belong to the Lord. Our bodies belong to the Lord. This is going to be the underpinning, the foundation of everything that you're about to read in our next passage. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. We're going to take it slow because some of these don't immediately ping as you're reading them. you got to know a little bit of background, all right? So we're going to begin with verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. All right, let's pause. What does that mean? Well, it sounds relatively interesting, but a little boring, yes? And you're like, nah, moving on. Don't really care. In your Bible, and I don't know if you can see this in the low lighting, in your Bible is the phrase, all things are lawful for me, in quotations. Some of you it will be, some of you it won't be. Okay, the reason why is that the people translating said, you know what, he keeps repeating this line as if everyone knew it. That means it was either a motto they were very proud of, or it's a quote from their last letter they had sent to him. Do you remember this? So Paul was talking to a church he set up four years ago. They've been arguing his leadership, so they've been writing letters back and forth. Well, you need to be doing this. Well, we don't agree with you. We see it this way. Yeah, but I'm in charge, and you did. And they're going back and forth and back. So he is quoting their last letter and then commenting on it, right? What did they say? All things are lawful for me. What does that mean? I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Why in the world would they say that? Is that a thing? Well, kind of. Maybe you've had this experience. They came from a world where they didn't know anything really or truly about God. Then all of a sudden, Paul comes in, and he shares with them what's called the good news, the stuff I just told you. And they find out that Jesus Christ traded his righteousness for theirs, which means 
Everything that was on your account, past, present, and future, has been removed. You actually get all of his goodness, all of his righteousness. It's given to your account. As a matter of fact, when the Father now sees us, he does not see us in our brokenness. He sees us with the righteousness of Jesus. There is nothing for the devil to hang on us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As a matter of fact, it's so deep that it says that we are ultimately walking in a perpetual state of grace. No matter what we do, if we are children of God, we will remain children of God. What that means is our actions don't dictate our eternal reality. Jesus dictates our eternal reality. And if that's the case, that means that we have no more baggage, we have forgiveness of sins, we have extreme and extravagant grace, we have power, we have authority, we have all this stuff, and that's what they learned. And they went, dang, this is awesome. So what you're telling me is that my actions and behavior don't dictate I'm good to go. Is that what you're telling me? So it doesn't really matter what I do, right? Like I'm going to heaven, right? I mean, isn't that what we, what we just talked about? Okay, cool, cool. So in other words, what you're telling me is I can do whatever I want because it's all covered. Is that what you're telling me? So they were arguing that. Do you understand why they were arguing that? Sure. Paul said, all right, there is certain truth in what you're saying. All right, I'll give you that. I'll give you that line. Yes, technically, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our actions do not determine the rest of whether or not God loves us or not. Cool, gotcha. All things are lawful for me. Great. But not all things are helpful. Okay, cool. All things are lawful for you, but I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. What was his point? Okay, technically, yes, you're still a child of God, but are you telling me that sin doesn't have ramifications? You're out of your mind. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. What are you saying? You keep saying just because Jesus died for it, it's not a big deal. Then why did he die for it? You keep telling me that just because it's covered, you can go on hurting the heart of God, and that's not a problem. What in the world are you talking about? And so he starts digging into it. Here's a better filter. Instead of this phrase, can I get away with it? Which, by the way, I have known a lot of Christians in my life, and a lot of them are looking for loopholes. Right? What can I get away with? If you are always looking for what you can get away with, it indicates your heart is not his at all. Like, why are you even asking the question? What can I get away with? You can ask that if we're talking about like a legal system. We're not talking about a legal system. We're talking about a person. If you said to your spouse, I wonder what I can get away with, they would know your heart is not knit to theirs. Yes? So that's not right. A better filter is not, can I do something, but is it right? Is it best? Is it healthy? Those are much better questions, right? A better filter would be not, is it legal or possible, but is this what God wants? Is this helpful to me? Is this helpful to the people around me? Is it loving? Is it wise? Those are questions we should be asking. As a matter of fact, it is a sign of Christian maturity that you think less and less about yourself. I will tell a mature Christian that in my conversations and in my interactions with them, they're not the primary person they're concerned about. 
The longer they're in the Lord, the less self has hold on them. They're constantly walking in this mode like, I'm here for Jesus, it's all for Jesus, whatever the Lord wants. You know what, I'm here for other people, I'll put myself on the back burner just to care for somebody. That's maturity. Do you have that? Does it, does it kind of equate to how long you've been in the church or have you gotten more focused on your opinions, your thoughts, your what? Hmm. So he says another phrase. He's like, you keep saying that you have the right to do things. But what if your freedom, in quotes, is actually going to lead you to greater bondage? I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Well, what's he talking about? How could freedom lead you to slavery? That, that, that doesn't even make any sense. Well, actually, it kind of does. We are always thinking of freedom in the sense of being able to do whatever we want to do. That's the wrong definition of freedom. That type of freedom does not exist. And you go, well, that's not true. Because the Bible says, who the sun sets free will be free indeed, meaning like totally free. So I was in bondage to sin and death. Satan had a hold on me. Jesus broke it. Now I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Nope. Let's talk about freedom for a second. I'll use a couple analogies to see if you can track with me. Imagine your five-year-old has freedom to live at home by themselves for a weekend. How's that going to go? Right? They got freedoms to play with razor blades. They got freedom to eat poisonous food. They got freedom to leave the doors open. Right? They have freedom. Isn't that what we want? Freedom. He can do whatever he wants to do. How's that going to turn out for him? Not well. Right? Here's another one. Let's use a super extreme example. Let's say we're tired of being bound up. I hate all these rules and regulations. Everybody's always telling me what to do. I'm a murderer, darn it. I want to be free to murder whoever I want to murder, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm going to murder equally. I'm going to murder ugly people and attractive people. I will murder tall people and I will murder short people, but I'm tired of all your rules. Does that sound like a good idea? I mean, it just sounds stupid, right? What do you mean freedom to kill people? That's not a thing. Okay, let's do it a little bit closer to home. Do any of us feel it is wise to use our freedom to eat anything we want? Well, what's gonna happen? You'll find out that you end up in bondage to the very thing you were trying to use your freedom for. How does freedom lead to bondage? It's misused. God gave you and me something as a joy, as a blessing, and we turned it into a jail cell. Why? Because we keep thinking we want to be in charge. We can't be. We don't know enough, right? As a matter of fact, we need to change our definition from free to do what we want to allowance to be who we were designed to be. You guys, that's what freedom means. We were always built to be under the Lord. Why? Because he's the source of life, and we want life. He's the source of blessing. We want blessing. He's everything good. We were always designed to be under that flow. When we stepped out is when things got bad. 
So freedom means to be back under so that we might be able to thrive and actually be what we were built to be. We were never built to be autonomous. We were never built to be totally independent. We were never built to be disconnected from God. That's not what we were built for. So a freedom is a return to our creation intent. That's the whole point. We gotta redefine freedom. Well, they continue on in their arguments. He quotes another one of the things that they said. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Well, this is kind of a a weird statement. What do you mean? Here's what they're saying. When we go to heaven, we're not going to have all the hunger pangs and the problem. The food, stomach, that's all here, man. It's all temporary. It's temporary stuff, so it's gonna go away, right? I mean, we have eternal stuff, we have temporary stuff. All that's gonna burn. Who cares? Stuff in my body doesn't matter because it's all gonna change anyway. Now, Paul acknowledges, well, hold on a second, you're a little bit right. Yes, our relationship with food and our relationship to our stomach is going to alter, right? And you're like, hold on, pastor, you better not say there's no food in heaven, right? Because you are going to freak me out, right? Hold on, hold on. Our relationship with food will change. What do I mean by that? Currently, we are in a broken down vehicle, right? Our bodies fail. They get tired, they get worn out, and we are slowly decaying. We use food as fuel to get back up and running to keep that jalopy moving. You understand what I'm talking about? But what happens when you're in a perpetual engine? What happens when you are not breaking down? What happens when it is not getting weakened? You're using food differently, right? What if we weren't entrapped to food? Because now we use food for all kinds of stuff, do we not? Rarely is it about eating anymore. It's about filling holes in our life. I need to feel better about this. I need to feel better about that. And we're constantly pushing it into the holes of our lives. But what if those holes aren't there? What if we're whole? What if we're strong? What if we're vibrant? What if we're alive? Then what are we using food for? The relationship changes. And you go, oh, so there's no food. Hold on. The Bible says that God gave Adam and Eve food before sin came into the world. So it's not attached to sin. It's still a blessing, but their interaction with it was different. So Paul said, hold on, you're making this argument about a change in relationship. I'm agreeing with you there, but when you keep saying that your bodies don't matter, you're out of line. That is not theologically accurate. Why would they believe that? Well, let's take a look at the next verse. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, this is Paul talking, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What's his point? You guys, when we go to heaven, we're taking our bodies with us. They were like, I'm sorry, what's that? He's like, yeah, I know, your theology's bad. Why is their theology bad? Well, here's what happened. The city of Corinth is in modern-day what country? Greece? Yeah? 
Greeks have always been very, very impressed by their history. They've had an incredible, illustrious history. They've had incredible things about writing. They've had incredible things about art. They've had incredible things about philosophy. They've really given the world a whole bunch of stuff. Very, very brilliant people. So they were super proud of that. And we've had some pretty mega thinkers come out of Greece, have we not? People like Aristotle and Plato. I mean, you got these like mega minds, right? Well, when they talked about the spiritual, here's what they said. And now you gotta remember, they were the biggest deal on the planet at the time. They said this, there is a divine other. There's something out there that is the perfect. We're gonna, maybe we put our gods in there. We could say that there's one true power, whatever. Don't wanna get into it right now. But there is a perfect reality out there somewhere. Everything that we see here is all polluted and tainted and ruined. None of this stuff gets there. The only thing that's gonna translate from here to there is your mind. Your mind can be elevated, your mind can be transformed, so you, ultimately, your thoughts and your processes will go there, but all this stuff just burns away. It doesn't have value. That's what they grew up with. Well, all of a sudden, they become Christians. And they're like, okay, so hold on. Earthly stuff doesn't matter. Divine stuff matters. Wait, you're telling me, okay, so God saves me, Jesus saves me. Oh, I'm in grace. It doesn't really matter what I do because ultimately I'm saved anyway. So, and they mushed it together. Man, I am so glad today we do not allow culture to impact our theology at all. <laughs> Warning. Please always revisit how your culture and your generation and living where you live is influencing how you're reading the Bible. Everything we're reading is through a lens and a bias, right? We gotta wonder, how much is our society shaping what we believe about Jesus, right? Well, they had the same problem. So they're like, it's all gonna burn, doesn't matter. And Paul goes, that is incorrect. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, Where's his body? He took it with him. That's weird. Because if indeed it was only his mind, why wouldn't his body still be there? He took his body with him. Christianity teaches a bodily resurrection. You're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I don't like mine, right? Okay, here's the other problem. The other problem is what if I die in lava? What's he gonna do? How's he gonna get it back, right? Okay. He's really good at putting people back together again, right? He knows what he started with and he can recreate it. And you're like, yeah, give me a better one, <laughs> right? But his whole point is, notice that the Bible says that one day there will be a new heavens and a new what? Why earth? Why not just go with the whole ethereal heaven thing? Why have a tangible, familiar thing like a new earth? Angels? have a form. When God reveals himself, he shows himself in a form. When we go to heaven, we have a form and a body. We are not little orbs. We are not little lights sprinkled all over the place. It's very familiar. Christianity teaches a bodily resurrection. What does that mean for us? It means we're way more integrated than you ever imagined. 
It means that we're a little ecosystem. What we do in our bodies affects our spirit, affects our mind, will, and emotions. All that stuff affects our body. Anybody ever heard of psychosomatic illness? Absolutely. The stuff we think really impacts how we live. All right, if we are that integrated, then what we do in any facet of our life impacts the other. Is that correct? Okay, this was Paul's argument. Now, let's take it one step further. What was Paul really going to correct them about? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That means limbs. Don't you know that you're Jesus Christ's arms and legs? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? You're like, whoa, you jumped there. Okay. Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Huh. Why is he talking about prostitution? Well, clearly it was a problem in the Corinthian church. You had a bunch of church people going to prostitutes, and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's so extreme. Not really. Here's why. Let's go back into the ancient world. They live in a very small environment where everybody knows everybody. There's an awful lot of accountability. And in that, they're in a religious environment. They're in a Christian environment. People don't hook up. That's not a thing. In our weird liberal world where we're like, hey, we can have sex with anybody, all that kind of stuff, and we date and all this. Okay, that's not a thing. And there's no porn. Like all the acting out individually, and I'm going to utilize this, and I'm going to utilize that, none of that exists. So the only sexual outlet that they would take advantage of is the professional route. It's another live person, and that person's doing it as a business. So you think, how many people in church are acting out sexually? Billions! Well, back then, they only had one route to go. So it was a problem in the church. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 you guys, you have no idea what you're messing with. This is so out of line. But I don't think you understand why. Let me tell you why. So he starts this argument. He said, all right, do you not know that we're the body of Christ? Right? We're the body of Christ. You're like, yeah, 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 you keep saying that. No, I mean literally. Jesus Christ was here on this planet. And what did he do when he was here? He loved on people. He was compassionate and kind. He gave them the gospel and good news. He fought the oppressors and set the captives free. He healed people. He cast out demons. And it goes on and on and on. That's what he did. And then he said, hey, guys, I'm going to go reign from heaven and send you guys power, authority, and blessings. I need you to keep doing what I was doing. So what is our job as a church? Keep doing what he was doing. We are literally his extensions, his limbs here in the world. When Jesus wants to give somebody a hug, that's on us. When Jesus wants to give somebody money, it's on us. When Jesus wants to use arms and legs to stop oppression, that's us. We are his extensions out into the world. He said, all right, let's start there. You are fused with Jesus and you are part of how he operates in this planet. Everyone's like, okay, I got it. Nope, you don't got it. As a matter of fact, you're one with spirit in him. That means it's not just a bodily thing. You're like fused on every single level. You are one new entity. Here's what I mean. I mean that when Jesus Christ 
fused with you. When you said, I want to be yours, he came and made his living in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are now fused together. Everything on his account goes into us. Everything on our account went to him, and he was like, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> we are now one new entity. Imagine it this way. Imagine you and I were going to create a partnership. We're going to create a new corporation. It's called Corporation X. Everybody that interacts with Corporation X is actually interacting with you and I, right? All my liabilities and assets have an impact on Corporation X. All your liabilities and assets have an impact on Corporation X. It's a new entity of the two of us fused together. We don't get to pull it apart. It just is what it is. Okay, that's what happens with Jesus. So Paul says, let's start there. If you are fused with Jesus, then every single thing you do on this planet involves Jesus, yes? All right, cool. Let's talk about prostitutes. You're like, ah, oh, I hate going to Bridgeway. I totally hear you. I understand. Why do you keep coming to this? I keep asking myself the very same question, right? Like, what you need to know more about is prostitution. Here was his point. Okay, when you have sex with somebody, you fuse with them on a deep spiritual level. You're like, Pastor, I don't mean to be crass, but dude, there's no fusing going on. What I'm doing is simply just a physical issue. And I go, no, 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 just because you're ignorant doesn't make it true. <laughs> right? So here's the point. You see, it's happening whether you know it's happening or not. Now, you can see indicators. Why is there so much heartache when it comes to romance? Well, there's fusion going on and then ripping apart and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to process it. So we can't quite keep up with what's happening in our mind, will, and emotions. We can't track on it. Something underneath the ground got fused together with whoever we hooked up with. Now, some of us, it didn't even have to get to a sex issue when we were already knitting hearts together and then those got ripped apart. But once we get to the sex issue, the Bible says God uses that as a fusion element. And you're like, wait, wait, I thought that was like marriage. Oh, yeah, 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 we celebrate this stuff all the time. Oh, they're getting married, isn't it so cute? Let's read some poems and read some passages. The two are becoming one flesh. Isn't that beautiful? Pause, whatever happened on that altar happened in your hookup. You're like, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Here's why, the fusion happens just because you thought now this time it's legit doesn't make it different. Now, marriage fusion is more than sex, right? So you're building on that and making it something much larger, much more beautiful. But the fusion happened at the sex piece. So every partner you've had, ultimately there was a fusion, and then there's a break and a fusion and a break and a fusion and a break, okay. So here's what Paul said. You're fusing with that prostitute. And who are you inviting into the relationship? Jesus. Why is Jesus hooking up with prostitutes? Something's not right there. Here's the other problem. Notice that in the next chapter, and we're gonna talk about this next week, in the next chapter, Paul starts talking about sexual issues within a marriage. And what he says was, because you guys are fused, the spouse actually has the authority over the other person's body, right? We'll get into what that means. 
but let's take it into this context. Are you telling me that Christians are fusing with non-believers who now have authority over their body and now they're back in the community and so what? Our community is a mess. Why? Because everybody's got the rights on everybody else and all of a sudden everything is messy and everything's brokenhearted and everything's distorted and we go, why are we all having a hard time? There you go. We're doing stuff and playing with things that we don't understand. Now, a couple other things about, I want to talk about this issue about this prostitution stuff. We get really kind of high and mighty and we're like, oh, they're not talking about us. Do you know how many people are in prostitution that don't want to be in prostitution? And then we end up putting a label on them. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound very crass, and I'm only saying it to make a point. But what we do sexually and what a prostitute does, the only difference is economics. Okay? Because we keep playing this thing, oh, they're those people. Nope. They're us people. They just have better business sense. <laughs> Here's the point. We keep stirring a pot that we don't know how to handle. And Paul said, this shouldn't be the case, you guys. You're hurting each other. Uh, hold up, pastor. Consenting adults, they agree to it, I agree to it, no problem. Mm -mm. God didn't agree to it. This whole business about consenting... Why are you in charge? You don't even know what you're doing. No, no, no. Either God authorizes it or it doesn't work, right? Just because you both agreed on it doesn't make it healthy, doesn't make it right, doesn't make it good. Yeah? So here's what he says. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Huh. Christians kind of have a weird response, especially religious people, have a really weird response when it comes to sex. We either slide on one side of the pendulum or the other. The one side is we are freaked out by anything sexual. Oh my gosh, don't say the word. You said the S word. And then it was like, oh my gosh, even when I change, I shut off the lights. You know, and you're like, okay, what is wrong with you? Like you're over here where all the Puritans are like, what is wrong with you? Okay, you're way over here in some weird land because you think that God hates sex. Pause, sex is God's idea. It was always his idea. You're like, no, 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 he doesn't like me to have fun. He designed fun. If it was actually fun, he would have suggested it because that's his whole point. He wanted you to thrive. The problem is we do things that are kind of fun and kind of damaging, and he's never gonna sign off on damaging. We're never allowed to be abusers. We're never allowed to use other people as consumables. So he's always gonna have a problem with hurting. You go, uh, well, I don't understand, like, like God's against sex. No, God's not against sex. He's like, actually, I included a book in the Old Testament that actually talks all, all about it, you know, and I'm not sure if you've read that one, right? God's not against it. So we either have this weird reaction, all sexual sins are worse than every other sin. Isn't that what we do? Because of passages like this, because we don't know how to read our Bible. We look at it and we're like, see, it's a different kind. 
Oh, it's unique, but it didn't say it's worse. Because here's what we do. We want to justify our pride, our lying, and our gossip, which are on the list of abominations to God, as long as we're not like those people. Right? Whoever they are. We pick somebody that does something weird sexually, and we're like, yeah, look at them. Okay, why are we doing that? That's not biblical. So on one hand, we either go that extreme, or we go to the other extreme. I'm a Christian, I'll be forgiven anyway, I can hook up with whoever I want, I can do whatever I want, I, don't tell me, you can't judge me, blah, 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 right? And you're like, why are we not living in the massive freedom of the middle where we actually have freedom? Why are we so extreme? I do also wanna say this, if you remember the last list that Paul had given us, is he said, these people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and he did a whole bunch of lists. But he said, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were being glorified. What does that mean? Some of us are hearing this stuff about sex, and all of a sudden the enemy's coming in and accusing us and going, man, what is wrong with you? Okay, hold on. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, I can leave it there. But if there is condemnation on you, you're in the wrong voice, right? The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His ability to redeem your past is so powerful, you can't even tell it ever occurred. So once again, I'm not here in leaving you an accusation. I won't give Satan that foothold. It means it's serious, but it's not something Jesus can't deal with. He knows how to handle that stuff, right? What it means is we just have to mature. He said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? If you've invited the Holy Spirit in, then you're involving him in all kinds of stuff. And that's kind of what I want to close on. We used to hand out this booklet to everybody that received Jesus Christ for the first time. For many years, it was called My Heart Christ's Home. We didn't write it. It's just been a book that I don't know when it was made. It was really popular in the 80s, 90s. So we used to hand it out because I fell in love with this book. Here was the idea. Nobody understands what it means to ask Jesus into your heart. So this little booklet said, okay, let's just picture it like it's your house. You invite Jesus into your house and you guys are sitting by the fire and you're talking about things and you're studying scripture together and he's encouraging you and sharing your new identity. And it's this beautiful time. And then over time, he's like, hey, I noticed there's a room upstairs that stinks. Like, what's the deal with that one? It's like padlocked. And you're like, yeah, 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 that's my thing. Don't, I, I don't go over there. And he's like, mm, it's kind of gross. And I don't like being here. And I don't want to just stay downstairs. Can we handle that? And you start seeing all these analogies. And he's like, you know, there's a time when you're like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to go out tonight. And he's like, cool, let me grab my keys. And you're like, no, 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 you can stay here, right? <laughs> so it was this beautiful book that was so brilliant. Here's my problem with where the analogy fails. Jesus can't stay at home. Everything you see, everything you do, everything you engage with, your heart, your motivations, your mindset involves Jesus. Because when you fuse together, he said, we're all in. I go where you go. I do what you do. That's it. You would love to be able to say, but Jesus, I'm gonna be selfish right now. I'm gonna be sinful. You don't need to be a part of this. Can you stay over there? And his answer is, no, I can't. I'm with you all, no matter what. So what are we doing? 
You know, in a moment, we're going to close. I'm going to have the prayer team come up here, and then we have the introducing Bridgeway upstairs. So if you're brand new, I would love to meet with you. But as we close out here, here's what I want to pray about. I want to pray for freedom because here's what I think Jesus is trying to get in us. We should have the full freedom to walk anywhere he wants us to walk. We should be able to walk anywhere on this planet saying, my father owns this land. We should be able to walk by a liquor store without a weird, creepy pull, right? We should be able to walk and have relationships with people of the opposite sex, and there's nothing inappropriate going on. We should be able to go by a bakery and be able to control ourselves and not start thinking about body image issues. We should be able to have the full freedom to live as children of God, do anything he asks us to do without any hangups. That's what he's trying to get in us. He's trying to break us free. We're the ones trying to limit our world. He's working so hard to say, kiddo, Man, I built you a beautiful world. Don't you dare let the enemy shrink your world. Don't you dare let the condemner mess with your heart or imprison you in things I designed to be a blessing. Don't you think we should pray about that? That sounds good, yeah? We want that freedom, amen? Amen. amen. Let's go ahead. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? They're coming up to pray breakthrough for you, so if you need prayer, let's utilize them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We glorify you. You are so patient with us. God, we are all over the map. Sometimes we are super fired up for you and we want to do everything right, and then other times, Lord, we have written you off. So God, I just pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, not just to the harsh reality that we're a sinner. That's not the point. Every time, Lord, you remind us that we are precious to you, that we are healthy and whole in you, that you are taking us into beautiful places, that you're redeeming our past. Lord, you wanna remind us of what is glorious about us and what you've done. But God, along the way, we have settled for less. And I would just love for you to give us a heart for the best. May we ditch what the world offers for something so much better in you. Would you help us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.